for that. Um, I think we're wired up and all is working. Uh, just to, a few words about reading. Um, Kenny mentioned there are books available. I don't know how many of you read, but I would, I would encourage folk to read. There's lots of techniques to learn to read better. If you, you don't read, you're maybe put off. You read 10 pages a day. That's 3,600 pages a year. It's probably two books. So start off just a little bit. If you notice that all the smart people in the world read widely. You know, Bill Gates reads widely. Warren Buffett reads widely. Uh, maybe they don't read the right stuff, but they read widely. <laughs> Uh, and preachers who are worth any salt at all all read widely. You get a vocabulary. As Presbyterians, we don't speak to the dead. We don't do seances. If you do, speak to me uh, uh, later. But if you read, you can speak to the dead. You can speak to folk hundreds of years uh, old. You can engage with them and hear what they say. Luther, Calvin, the Greats, Augustine, uh, all through books. Books are absolutely uh, marvelous. And if you've got time to Facebook and tweet, you've got time to read. So I would encourage that you read, read, and read. So let's read. Can we open up our Bibles, please, in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 3? Mark chapter 3. And let's read at verse 13. And he went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard that they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. He casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided. He cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. 
And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of God. And we ask his blessing upon the reading of that word. I was born in 1961. Uh, it was a momentous year for many reasons. One was, I think it was the, the year that man went out to outer space. Yuri Gagarin went into outer space for the very first time. But reflecting back from 1961, the church scene in Scotland, uh, I, as I see it, there are three distinct phases. In the early 60s, the church was somewhat admired. The high point of the church in Scotland was the mid-50s, around about the time of the Billy Graham campaign. Churches were absolutely packed. People were talking about God. The church was admired for around about the first third of my life. And then there was a subtle change in Scottish society. The church began to be tolerated. You know, it was there, it was kind of cute, it was a little bit like a, a Labrador, nice, you know, if someone else has one, but rather smelly and inconvenient, but okay, if you want that, that's fine. So the church began to be admired, and then the church was tolerated. In the last few years, the church has occupied a different space, and that there's a degree now of antagonism and I would go further even to say, and I'm choosing this word very carefully, hatred against the church. So even if we put that word hatred to the side, let me take a, a little bit more neutral word, the word conflict. And this passage here in Mark chapter 3 talks about the Lord Jesus Christ as someone who was engaged in conflict. If there was a title to the sermon, it would be Jesus, the Conflict Magnet. I don't know about you, but I find the Bible extremely interesting. And Jesus is an interesting character. That's why it is so important that if you're new to the church or if you're talking to someone about Christianity, get them into reading the Bible. Get them into reading the source not what they think Christianity is all about. Because trust me, nine times out of ten, if you are talking to someone and they say, I don't agree with Christianity, I'll say, what do you not agree with? And they'll normally come up with something and you're standing to them and say, I don't agree with that either. So what I try and do is get folk to read the Bible, get back to the source. And the real Jesus... It's so much more intriguing, curious, interesting than the Jesus who is portrayed by the kind of official church in Britain today. And so many people, when they engage with Jesus, they find him an irritant. If Jesus is an irritant, then perhaps you are beginning to get the real Jesus. 
And the wonderful thing is that when he becomes, uh, moves from being an irritant in your life, annoying someone whose values you just don't like, what you often find is that as God does amazing things in our hearts, he moves from being an irritant to being a balm and a medicine for our soul. So the theme here of Mark chapter 3 is conflict. Look at it. Chapter 2, verse 24, it begins there. The Pharisees get a little bit annoyed. They were saying to him, look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? The Pharisees begin to pick on him. Chapter 3, verse 2, we find there that the Pharisees accuse him. They accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. By verse 6, it's escalated, hasn't it? The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians. Now, the Pharisees didn't normally get on with the Herodians. They just didn't like them. But when the common enemy was Jesus, they got together. The political establishment, the Herodians, and the religious establishment, the Pharisees, joined together and conspired against Jesus in verse 6. So what was originally a theological disagreement about the Sabbath turns into a murder plot. They conspired to kill him. My goodness. Here is Jesus, and, and all he's doing is arguing a debate about the Sabbath, and it sparks off such animosity that we have the beginning of a murder plot that ends. Well, we know it doesn't end, but in one sense it ends when Jesus is put up in trumped-up charges and crucified on the cross. So what's really going on here? Well, again, by, by way of introduction, the Pharisees, I think, begin to get it. They begin to see what Jesus is up to. Uh, you, you get a hint there, verse 7 and verse 8. Jesus withdrew with his disciples into the sea, and the great crowd followed him. Notice where all these people come from. Jerusalem, Edomia, Tyre, and Sidon. It may not strike you at first, but verse 7 and verse 8 is really interesting because it's not just the, 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 the tight area of Palestine. It's bigger than that. It's international. What you have in verse 7 and 8 are the boundaries, the borders of the old kingdom of Israel under King David. And remember, Jesus went up on a mountain and spoke to them. And how many disciples did he appoint? He appointed 12 disciples. How many tribes in Israel were there? 12. So Jesus is doing something really revolutionary here. <clears throat> He's setting himself up as the new King David. He's setting himself up as the new Israel. He is setting himself up as the Messiah. And so the Pharisees would say, who does he think he is? And the reply would be, well, actually, God. And that is the wonderful thing about Jesus, that he is not just a good example, that he's not just the greatest moral figure ever, but he is God in the flesh. The, the claims of Jesus are absolutely huge. They are magnificent. Jesus is not someone who can just be our pal. 
Jesus is not someone who's just a moral guide. He's God. He's as big as you can get. And that's what the Pharisees are beginning to realize that. So let's look at the passage in a little bit more detail. And you will be surprised to know that we will notice three things. Three areas of conflict. Okay, that's the main theme this morning. Jesus, the conflict magnet. Number one, verse 21, conflict in the family. Now, I know that none of you ever have conflict in the family, that all your family gatherings are sweetness and light, and that all your families are like the Waltons. Those of you who are old enough will know uh, who the Waltons were. My family at times is more like the Simpsons than the Waltons, to be honest. And that's Jesus' experience in verse 21. Because you, you, you notice there, uh, uh, verse 31, sorry, sorry, his mother and his brothers came and, uh, and they got on to him. And in verse 21, it says, when his family heard that they went to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Conflict in the family, verse 21. His family are saying, Jesus, you are out of your mind. And for those of you who are Greek scholars, I love one translation of this. And it says, you are nuts. And that's what the family were saying. He, here is Jesus. He is the, the eldest son. He is the main man. He, he's a rabbi. He is everything that, humanly speaking, would be great. And yet they say, you're, you're nuts, verse 21. You're, you're out of your mind. What made them think he was out of his mind? Two things. Number one, he, refu- he wasn't eating. Now, Jewish mums are just like Scottish mums. Uh, if you're not Scottish, maybe mums all over the world are like this. The answer to every crisis is food, okay? Let's, let's feed, feed you, and, and the problem will go away. So they're saying there, Jesus, he has not eaten. He's, uh, you know, verse 20. They went home and the crowd gathered again so that they, could, they couldn't even eat. So two things made them think that Jesus was bad. One, they weren't eating, and there were all these crowds. Do you know what's funny here is that they thought that Jesus was crazy because of his zeal. Isn't it funny that zeal in certain things is regarded as positive? I have a friend who works in, he's a lawyer, works in oil and gas, uh, works in Aberdeen, and he tells me about his, his day. He says, you know, I'll, I'll be in the office just after eight, and we do a lot of business over in the US, and especially in Houston, the oil guys in Houston are talking to us in Aberdeen, and he says, because of the time difference, sometimes we've got to stay till 10 and 11 at night, and he says, there is nothing gives me a greater buzz in life. And that is when 11 o'clock at night, that email comes in from Houston saying, we've done it, the deal is done. And that zeal is lauded. He is seen in his company as being an amazing guy for working 15-hour days over some silly oil well in the Gulf of Mexico while his family are being neglected. And yet zeal there and his company is saying it's a great thing. 
But zeal in regards to our faith is seen as a sign of madness. You mean you go to church twice on a Sunday? You, you mean you actually read that Bible? You read a few chapters at a time? You, 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 you're crazy. So it's funny how zeal and the things of God are madness, and in the secular sphere, they're not. Folk, I think most of us are zealous. We're zealous for certain things. There's certain things excite us. I was going to say maybe Scottish football, but maybe that's going a bit too far. There are other things which excite us. Do we still have that same, yes, it's an old-fashioned word, but let's, let's use it, zeal for the honor of God, passion for Jesus, who is the king, who is God. So there's conflict in the family, and that conflict is caused by zeal. And then they want to take charge of him. And when the family heard that they went out to seize him, isn't that so typical of us? We want to seize Jesus. We want to take control of him. And this is what so much of our faith is like. It is so man-centered. We are in charge of Jesus. The, the problem here is that the family don't see him as he is the son of God. And so there's conflict in the family here. But who are we in this passage? Who are we in verse 21? We are not Jesus who's misunderstood. We are the family who fail to understand him. We're scandalized at his words. We're scandalized at his actions. The family were in conflict with Jesus because they simply couldn't understand him. They are judging him. Has that happened to our lives almost subliminally instead of Jesus being our Lord? We are beginning to lord it over Jesus, judging him. Conflict in the family because we don't understand Jesus. Conflict in the family is, in verse 21, has moved on. Look at verse 22. You've got conflict with religion. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub. Now, when the boys come down from Jerusalem, it's never a good sign. You see that all through the Bible. When the guys come down from Jerusalem, they are usually angry. It's a bit like one of our congregations when the sailors coming from the mound from head office. There's a little commission going to meet with the congregation. You think, well, that's not a great day, is it? So they come down from Jerusalem. Now, I was reading about this because I read, you, you see. And uh, there was a concept at this time. Apparently, it was called a seduced city. And so in the, the religious establishment, when there was a, a danger of a city becoming seduced by a false prophet, the boys from Jerusalem would come down and they would find out what is going on. That's what we have there in verse 22. So enter the teachers of the law. 
Folk, if your family are brutal, trust me, there is no greater brutality than religious brutality. You see that there in verse 22. They come down and, and they really ramp it up, don't they? Not, you're out of your mind any longer of the family of verse 21. It's kind of cute compared to verse 22. You are possessed by Beelzebub. Their words are cutting. Beelzebub, again, those of you who are a certain age, the only time you'll have heard of Beelzebub will be from a Bohemian Rhapsody. And a lot of folk out there would say, that's amazing, the Bible is so relevant, it's quoting modern rock songs. And yet, we realize Beelzebub was the name for the devil. Religion, the greatest foes often come from an area that you simply don't expect. I've been dragged into Twitter. And uh, I read this tweet this morning from a leading religious figure, a, a, a leading Christian figure, absolutely destroying biblical Christianity. With friends like that, who needs enemies? So you've got this conflict with, with religion. And it, it's interesting that at times of spiritual awakening, awakening, it's so often the church that comes in with objections. They did that in the Anglican tradition when the Wesley brothers were preaching the gospel. They did it in the U.S. when Jonathan Edwards was preaching. They kicked them out of his church. Whenever there's a movement of God, the, uh, the, the official religious authorities just don't like it because things are not done the way they ought to be done. Men of the letter don't get the things of the Spirit. So there's conflict in the family, conflict in the church, but Jesus uses this conflict from verse 22 in religion to, to teach two different sections. Let's just look at them quickly. Number one, he teaches about a kingdom divided against itself. He said, you think I'm from the devil? Are you wise? And he told them a parable, verse 23, 24. And the parable is, can a kingdom be divided against itself? Is Satan risen up against himself? You say I'm from Satan, and yet I'm casting out demons? Prejudice blinds the eyes to reason. It does. And the current debate just now about the various issues that, that, that folk are talking about out there in the wider culture, you come with a degree of reason. You know, and I find myself asking questions that I never thought I would ever ask. What is a woman? What is a man? It's a fairly simple question. And yet you find here that, that prejudice blinds the eyes to reason. And people who speak against Christ do so often out of irrationality. Really smart people who in their work are incredibly together, logical, calm, become incandescent with rage when it comes to the things of God. And Jesus speaks of his character. If I expel demons, 
It's not because I'm a demon. It's because I, Jesus says, have a power greater than Satan. This is a very non-subtle way of Jesus saying, I am God. By the cross, I have entered the house of the strong man, verse 27, and I have plundered his goods. I have bound him. Jesus is saying, I'm not Satan. I have burst into Satan's house. I have bound his hands and I have plundered his room. He is nothing to me. A lot of you might like, I think it's a bit old school now, isn't it? Star Wars. I, I, I really don't, I, I, I don't like, I don't do fantasy. I don't like fantasy. Never read The Lord of the Rings. Don't like Tolkien. You know, no, don't lynch me after. It's just not my thing. Don't like, don't like fantasy. Never seen Star Wars in my entire life. However, I believe, and probably those of you who are Star Wars fans will say it's obvious he's never seen it in his life, a power of good against the power of bad, and you almost have two equal and opposite forces battling it out for galactic supremacy. That is not what it is here. Jesus is all-powerful. He is King of kings, Lord of lords. He is God himself. He will rout the kingdoms of darkness. I was a minister for 31 years in Inverness in the parish of Culloden. There was a battle of Culloden, 1746. Um, it's complex. It was not Scotland v. England. It was really, really complex. The battle of Culloden was over in something like 15 minutes. The Duke of Cumberland's armies squashed the armies of Bonnie Prince Charlie. It was a rout and a massacre. They were just obliterated. Jesus is not equal in power to Satan. He is all-powerful. And so, having talked about that, he moves on to something else. He's talking here about religious people. He's saying, you're talking about Satan. I am more powerful than, than Satan. And then he goes to the nub of our faith, verse 28 onwards. And he talks about a thing called the unpardonable sin. <clears throat> now, the unpardonable sin, isn't this a, a, an interesting thing? The unpardonable sin is, is demonstrated by what the Pharisees are doing. The unpardonable sin is... When people sin against light, and we find here that they see the work of Christ as evil. It's a total hardening of the heart. There are sins which are forgiven. We'll come to that in a second. But there is one sin which is unpardonable. To, to some folk here, that this is new. For others of you, 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 you know about this? The unpardonable sin is this willful blindness which opposes the work of the Spirit. Edinburgh's in a real mess just now in terms of traffic. If you want to get a conversation going in Leith, you just mention the T word, which is the trams. 
Okay, see, there. It sparked off a reaction right away. It's almost like Pavlovian response, the trams. And what you often get are these roads. There's this crazy game that the, the kids play in, in, in computers about the, the, I've forgotten the name of the cars go. Edinburgh's a bit like that. And sometimes you'll see a road that's blocked off for no reason and you think, I am so fed up. It says no entry and you think, I'm just going to go through here. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Not, not breaking traffic laws in, in Edinburgh. That's not the unpardonable sin. That's where illustrations somewhat break down. But when you, you escalate this in the clear law of God, God says, no. And we say, not only will I disobey you, I think good is evil. Now, I wonder if we focus on the wrong part of verse 28. I think we do, uh, verse uh, 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 28 and 20, I think we do often focus uh, on the wrong part. We often think this passage is about the unpardonable sin, and it is. But the big part of verse 28 that really gets me is all sins will be forgiven the children of men. All sins will be forgiven the children of men. That is absolutely amazing. We live in a society, and here is where the irony is. We live in a, in a, a society where forgiveness is in short supply. got an email last week. And the email says, The Free Church of Scotland in the year 1884 received £170,000 that was taken through slavery. What are you going to do about it? Now, I'm, 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 not, I'm not demeaning that. I'm, I'm not saying that that is a light thing at all. But where do we stop? Where, where do we stop? Do we go for the Vikings? Do we go for every injustice? Is there a time when folks say there has to be forgiveness? And if people say something wrong, if folk are offended, there is never an end to it. We live in a secular culture. It's so unforgiving. It really is. It's cruel. There is no chance of forgiveness. Things are taken for the end, uh, end and end. And Jesus is saying here, all sins will be forgiven. God is weighty. We've lost the concept of sin. I'm not hearing people talk about sin and preaching anymore. I'm not hearing people talking about sin in their conversation. Sin is weighty. Why is sin weighty? Sin is weighty because of whom it is committed against is committed against God. Do you remember the Italian was he Prime Minister Berlusconi? And um, remember when he met the Queen? Do you remember the shockwaves? If you're a Republican, you probably wouldn't be shocked by this, but suspend your, 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 your wrath for, for a minute. Berlusconi put his arm round the queen. You don't do that. 
You don't high five or his majesty as he is now or when the queen was alive. You don't give the queen a fist bump. That is not how you react to royalty. How much more God? Sin is serious because God is God. If you're worried that you've committed the unpardonable sin, you have not committed it. But whoever you are, whatever sin you have committed in the past, is it a lie? Is it adultery? Is it theft? All sin can be forgiven. Lastly, quickly, very quickly, conflict resolved. It ends by talking about a family, doesn't it? Verse 31 onward. And his mother and brother's family again, they came and standing outside, they sent him and called him. There, 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 they're at it again. And this is quite a dramatic passage. And, and the crowd say, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus said, he doesn't say, they are not my mother. But he asked the question, who are my mother and my brothers. And looking about those who sat around who said, here are my mother and my brothers. There is a new family, a bigger family. And this is one of the wonders of this morning, the miracle of Grace Church, at least in many other churches, that we are a disparate group of people from all over the world, and yet we are all part of the same family of God. The family are brought together by those who not just think about the will of God, but verse 35, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. I have never seen in my life such division and conflict in the wider society. I have never seen that. And I'm not all that old. Some of you think, well, you're deluded if you don't think you're all that old. But we live in a very divided world. There's conflict everywhere we go. Could it be that in this church here, we have a little colony of heaven, of the new heavens, a peace and tranquility and love and a sense of forgiveness where conflict is banished. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and kindness. We ask your blessing to be on us. Help us to have in our lives good conflict, but that we would avoid the bad conflict. Thank you for the passage of Scripture here. Help us to live it. 